Thank you for joining us for this episode of Podcast. My name is Laura Axtell. I'm one of the hosts. And today's episode will be a bit different. There are no experts, but I'm going to be talking about a topic that is really meaningful to me personally and something that is happening in our schools and our juvenile detention centers and adult prisons that really isn't discussed very much at all. And we hope you'll find this information to be of value. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading. Available in a blended learning model that includes both direct instruction and instructional software, Reading Horizons has developed specific reading programs for students in kindergarten to third grade and a specialized program for older learners from fourth grade to adult called Reading Horizons Elevate. Visit www.readinghorizons.com to learn more. So today's episode of PodClass will focus on two areas. First, the research about effective intervention for older learners and adults and how their unique needs require some considerations. You'll also hear from a teenager and an adult about the impact that reading difficulties has had on their lives. The second area is the connection between reading failure and juvenile delinquency and how this often translates to the incarceration of adults. So to start with, I have a master's degree in special education and a master's degree in counseling. And neither of those degrees prepared me to work with older students and adults. So for 12 years, I worked with juvenile offenders in residential and non-residential educational settings. For eight years, I worked in an alternative high school with students who had been expelled from their schools. I spent nine years as an adjunct instructor at a community college with adult learners and then four years as a special education teacher in a junior and senior high school as a special ed teacher, and then three years at an American international school in Thailand. So I've had lots of opportunity to observe lots of older students and adults in in a variety of settings. And when I came to understand really one of the common denominators, it changed everything because the common denominator across the board was school failure, most often related to reading and the inability of students, often from very, very early grades, to be able to access the content, shame and embarrassment, and just all of the factors that went along with having characteristics of dyslexia, etc. So today we're going to dig in deep to that topic and really just look at what does the research say. We're going to really explore some of the options. And then what do we know about what could significantly impact this situation for students who are older? So to get started, it may be helpful to identify some characteristics of older learners. They are not the same as the students that we would find in kindergarten to third grade, who are spending a lot of time learning to read. So there's a lot of support there. Things are much simpler. And so what we find about characteristics of older learners is that they have been struggling for many years in most cases. If they were behind in first grade, then often what's happened now is that they're in fourth grade or eighth grade or 12th grade or an adult, and they really haven't improved in terms of their reading skills, which is why a lot of times secondary students will show up in a 
10th grade class, for example, still reading at sometimes a second, third, or fourth grade level. And so some of the research to start may include looking at what Dr. Jean Shaw at Harvard called the fourth grade slump, which really helps to explain how this happens because students in those early grades can really look like they're making progress for all the reasons I mentioned, including the fact that, you know, the words are simple. Um, they're reading stories and things like that. But once they get to fourth grade, typically that changes. And now what happens is that students go from learning to read with a lot of support to reading to learn, where a lot of the information they're expected to receive from text is going to have to be done independently. And so then a host of issues arises. Number one is if they're unable to decode those words, that becomes an issue with accessing content. But more importantly, the words get much more complex in fourth grade and above. So now we're into multisyllabic words. We're into subject-specific texts like science and social studies. And so what happens is students tend to plateau. They go as far as they could with the, you know, the information they had, and they just don't get any better. And that is especially true for teachers of secondary students who see these students come into their classes, but haven't often had the training or the experience to work with a struggling reader who's older. And so that plateauing effect really does continue throughout their education and often into adulthood. If they had a fourth grade reading level and that never improved, then they're going to end up as an adult with a fourth grade reading level. So, you know, results of longitudinal studies have shown that when intervention is delayed until third grade or about nine, which is the average age at which students receive those services, then approximately 74% of these children are going to continue to have difficulties learning to read through high school. So the vast majority of them, even when they get intervention, but it's been delayed to third grade. So what we do know is that the earlier we can intervene, the better. But for many of our students, that intervention didn't happen. And so some of the characteristics of struggling readers in those upper grades is that they're almost always less fluent readers. They have sight, word vocabularies, thousands, many thousands of words smaller than average readers. And they usually know the meanings of fewer words and often have very limited vocabulary. We know from research done by Stanovich that the majority of our vocabulary comes from what we read after third grade. So how people build vocabularies through reading. But if students aren't good readers, then they're not doing that level of reading and they're not building on vocabulary. So often, even when they can decode the word, they don't know what it means. And that can dramatically affect even what they're receiving in terms of you know, oral language. So if a teacher's talking about something, even though they don't have to read it, but they don't understand what the teacher's saying because they don't know what the words mean, that can have a dramatic effect. These students usually have less conceptual and background knowledge because, again, a lot of that would come from reading, which they aren't doing or can't do. And they're almost always less skilled in using strategies to enhance comprehension or repair it when it breaks down. So when they come to an unknown word or they are trying to gather information and something breaks down. They don't have the strategies. They don't know what to do. The other thing that we often see is that older students appear unmotivated and resistant to reading instruction. So, you know, we feel like we're doing everything we need to do in terms of providing support. And yet often those kids have been shut down. And in order to really understand why that may be occurring, we have to really think about something that 
often isn't considered for older students. And that is for them, reading is probably now as much psychological as it is educational. That if you've been struggling all this time and have developed beliefs that you're stupid because you can't do something that seems so easy for other students, in order to teach them, we first have to reach them. And that means addressing the affective issues associated with reading difficulties. So I just want to read a, a quote from a study that was um, published in the Journal of Pediatrics called Learning Disabilities, Dyslexia, and Vision. This is really relevant because we know that for the majority of older students who still struggle with reading, dyslexia or characteristics of dyslexia play a factor. We're going to talk about some statistics related to that. But the quote says, many children with reading disability are observed to grow ashamed as they struggle with skills that their classmates master easily. This shame may cause a loss of motivation to learn to read that can further compound the situation. Untreated or poorly treated dyslexia may lead to frustration, low self-confidence, and poor self-esteem, which substantially increases the risk of developing psychological and emotional problems. So often what we haven't really thought about is those kids who have struggled with reading and now they're coming to a class where they're going to be expected to read out loud in some cases and how embarrassing that is. And for many of them, they've spent the majority of their time in school hiding that fact. So that's why it's important to hear from the two people that we're going to listen to um, today. We also know from re some research done in 2010 that belief in yourself is more closely linked to achievement than any other motivation throughout school. The reason is that confidence, which refers to belief in your capacity, is tied intimately to success. So if we don't allow students to acquire the skills to start to believe that they do have the ability then often we won't move the dial at all on that motivation factor. We really have to increase their feelings of self-efficacy. So a couple of things that may be helpful to consider is that the amount of time that we spend with older students is probably a much larger factor than many have considered. Dr. Joseph Torgerson, who is the Director Emeritus of the Florida Center for Reading Research, in a webinar, he summarized a study of an elementary school in Kennewick, Washington, that took place in 1995. So this was before the National Reading Panel Report, before the ter term RTI had been adopted. Dr. Torgerson discusses that this district in Washington set a goal to have 90% of their students in third grade reading at grade level, and that they were going to do everything they could to focus on that particular goal. And if you want to look it up, the report is called the 90% reading goal. And here are some of the findings. So remember, this is elementary school still, even in these early grades. And what they found is that growth is directly proportionate to the quality and quantity of instructional time. When we looked at our data student by student, we saw a painful fact with painful clarity. Most students who start behind stay behind. Time-starved reading programs that rely on sudden growth bursts from extraordinary instruction rarely move students from the 5th to the 30th percentiles up to grade level. This is in those very early grades again that we're talking about. So the connection to amount of quality time spent may be the single biggest factor, but it's again the quality of the intervention and of the person providing it.
So many times what happens is students are pulled for intervention. Often when, you know, I talk to schools and other schools talk about the amount of time they spend on intervention. In some cases, that's 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day, or it's every other day, or they're trying to combine all of the standards in with reading instruction. And for older students, what we know is those are really separate things. Students have to have that intervention for significant periods of time, again, to help them get caught up and to be able to access the content. And so there's something called the logic of instructional intensity. A lot of this is based on the work of Dr. Torgerson. So one of the things that we know is that if a student is performing below grade level targets on a screening or progress monitoring measure, like a standardized reading test or a Dibbles assessment or something like that, they are generally already substantially behind in required development. So when we start to see these students who are showing up Uh, even on a screening, as having difficulty, that often is really a red flag. We also know that the most direct way to increase learning rate is by increasing the number of successful instructional interactions per school day. So every minute counts if we're ever going to substantially address these issues. The factor is, though, that in order to achieve those grade level standards by the end of their period of instruction, these students who are struggling have to learn those critical skills faster than their grade level classmates to ever catch up. So while their neurotypical classmates are continuing to increase in reading, they can't just keep pace. They actually have to go faster to ever be able to have a chance of catching up with those students. Some research done by Vaughn, Wanzik, Murray, and Roberts in 2012 said this, Although the amount of instructional intervention a student requires to make progress varies, research suggests the following ranges for elementary students. So listen to this for elementary. A duration of intervention of at least 8 to 16 weeks with the length and frequency of intervention 30 to 120 minutes per day. So that's for elementary students. But what they go on to say is that secondary students who struggle with reading might need more time in intensive intervention to make progress. So what often happens is that these older students have, in some cases, no time. But even when they do, it's extremely limited. So if they're being pulled out for intervention or they're receiving reading instruction as part of special ed and matching to IEP goals, really we have to think about how much actual daily intervention do secondary students and adults receive consistently? And how much of that is focused on research-based reading intervention that we know will, again, make every minute count? With adults, we know that this is even more of a difficulty. So our students who are in school every day, this is really our last chance to provide that level of intervention at the amount of time we're talking about. But that rarely happens, even in you know, middle schools and high schools where students are getting, you know, 90 to 120 minutes a day of of intensive intervention. But for adults, think about it. Then they leave school, they go out into the world. And even in adult basic education programs, they may have, you know, once or twice a week. And that may, again, be really limited. They've they've got jobs, they've got families, etc. So part of the first thing to consider is time. Are we even 
providing the amount of time with the right kinds of intervention that these students need. And so if we're talking about, you know, effective reading instruction, we know that that is connected to the science of reading and that the the most effective way is something called structured literacy. And we've, you know, there's lots of information out there about structured literacy. But, you know, one of the things that really has come about is the understanding that even older students often struggle with the sounds of the language and that connection to, you know, the sound symbol correspondence between sounds and letters. So Dr. David Kilpatrick, who has written numerous published articles and books and is a well-known researcher, said, the biggest mistake we make is when we think that children or adults are too old or beyond phonemic awareness. So that understanding that when we do effective instruction and following the, you know, the our understanding of structured literacy, that starts with phonology and that sound syllable correspondence. And you really need an effective approach for doing that with older students because again, they're embarrassed and ashamed. And so going take them all the way back to the beginning can be very challenging as an educator. So when we think about the, you know, the psychological impacts of um, what we're doing with students, one of the things we really want to do is think about creating a safe learning space and having conversations with students before we ever start that instruction or assessment to make reading difficulties more normative, to explain that many older learners have reversals with their letters, that many of them have difficulty hearing those individual sounds, especially of short vowels, for example, and that that's a relatively common thing because most of our students feel like they're alone. The other thing that's really helpful is that, you know, thinking about making sure that it's safe in the sense that nobody else is going to know your reading level. So if you've been taking these standardized tests and just clicking through and not even trying to complete the assignment, it's often because you know that if you take your time, those results are going to indicate your true reading level and you don't want anyone to know that. So making sure that students don't have access to other types of information about that, for example, Lexile levels. If you're using Lexile level, students don't really know what that means. And so that can be helpful. Also, that just helping people understand, um, our students understand that different people have different gaps in what they've learned. The same way that some people are better in geometry than algebra, or that you have to have learned certain things before you can do certain types of math, that's true of reading as well. So if you don't have some foundational skills, it's going to be very difficult to get into those upper skills. Also, when you're doing assessments for fluency or accuracy, it's helpful to do those in private whenever possible so that other students aren't around and sometimes that other teachers aren't around because students are so embarrassed by their limited reading, They're how they've stumbled over words and people have laughed in the past. And so really for a lot of these students, it's traumatic. And also, if you're going to have students in reading groups, if that's something that can be very helpful, but um, if you've got students who are much better readers, having them in a group with a struggling reader can often be really embarrassing. And especially if somebody laughs or makes a comment, then again, this addresses a lot of the psychological parts of what we're talking about with older students. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. Reading Horizons is a sponsor of PodClast, and they have developed a number of other resources for educators, including a webinar I'd like to share with you that connects to today's topic. 
The webinar presented by Dr. Joseph Torgensen is titled, Teaching All Students to Read. Is it really possible? To find this webinar, go to readinghorizons.com forward slash podcast and look in the resources for today's episode. So now I want to just hear what a student has to say about his experience with reading so that you can hear from a student's point of view how much of a challenge this has been for him and also how it's affected him emotionally. I'm Jeff. I'm 15. I go to a public charter. I like drama, writing, art, music, just stuff like that. School's always been a struggle. It's never been easy for me. I was like kind of slow behind everybody. Like I was the last one in my class to learn how to read or do anything else. I thought I was stupid. I thought I couldn't do anything. A lot of times I would be like so nervous and have so much anxiety. I would fake being sick just so I wouldn't have to go to school and see everybody. When I learned I had dyslexia, it pretty much changed everything. When I write about it, I like to say it was like I was drowning, right? And it was a life preserver to help me learn how to swim over time. It was like, like oh, I'm not the problem. I just think differently. So it really changed my self-image and the way that I did things. And then I started believing that I wasn't stupid. So I started trying in school again. I just kind of owned it. I just kind of decided, yeah, I have these learning disabilities and who cares, you know? So now it's helpful to listen to an adult who's able to reflect back on his experience as a student. Greg Walcott is now an assistant superintendent in a district outside of Chicago. And his ability to consider all of the things that he was thinking about and dealing with in those elementary and then upper grades really helps us get a sense of why this is such an important issue. You know, I vividly remember in third grade being as the reading groups broke up and we went into different reading groups and, and I was the only blackbird. And, and we literally had, you know, the bluebirds, the cardinals um, and all the different groups and, and then me. And I was the, you know, I was a blackbird and, and the, the teacher would put me in that group and, and I was kind of stuck on SRA cards. I would basically do whatever I had to do not to read in class or not to be um, in any situation where, where that reading might, you know, make me different, look different than everyone else. Um, and, and, you know, when papers were, were turned back, I'd you know, I'd, I'd throw them down right away so nobody could see them. You know, social studies, I remember, was still in those days a lot of, you know, reading from the chapter. And I would sit there and luckily, I don't know if my, I don't know why my teachers did it, but, it, you know, you kind of could count out paragraph by paragraph when it was going to be your turn. And um, I'd, I'd count out and I'd know my paragraph and I would read, read that paragraph five, six times. I didn't pay attention to anything going on before me. But I'd reread that paragraph five or six times in hopes that when it finally was my turn, you know, and then, you know, you hear every snicker and you hear every noise that everyone else, when it is your turn to read, you, you feel that shame. And so you're and, and that lack of self-confidence. So now at that point, you're just focused. And at least I was I was focused on what everyone else in the room, how they're reacting to my reading was rather than because I was just so, so, so self-conscious. So as I struggled I saw everyone around me being successful. You know, I saw my brothers on the honor roll. I saw those things. And so I just began to think, you know, I'm not able. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not smart enough to do it. And I thought, okay, at least I have, you know, sports to turn to. You know, some kids didn't have that. I can't tell you how many times though I'd read, you know, a passage six, eight, ten times to try to get 
the basic meaning for it. But um, I would do that over and over again. And but, um, you know, so it, it took forever to, to get through that. Listening to Jeff and Greg, you really get a sense of the impact of reading difficulties on that psychological issue we talked about earlier, how embarrassing it was and how ashamed they felt and how it affected their self-esteem. Jeff described it as like he was drowning. And having a diagnosis of dyslexia doesn't necessarily, it's not a magic wand, but it can go a long way in helping those students and adults understand why they're having difficulty with reading and that it has nothing to do with intelligence. And Jeff described that after he knew that, now he can own it and it makes him want to try. And Greg talked just about the fact that, you know, he had to do things so much more than any of his other classmates, reading things five and six times. And that's where it leads to the issue of behavior. So if you've been struggling for a long time and you do feel frustrated and ashamed, often kids act out. So they'll do things like be the class clown so that nobody will notice that they're not reading or they'll get in trouble so that they can be kicked out of class. So nobody will ever understand that it's the reading that's a factor or they'll just be sick. They'll go to the nurse's office or not come to school. And that's where we get into this whole issue of how behavior is connected to the school-to-prison pipeline and can often cause difficulties for students that are directly relatable to their struggles with reading. Okay, now I want to really talk about and summarize some research on the connection between delinquency and reading difficulties. So we're, I'm going to just go through some of the studies that have been done over time. So this is actually not new. You know, there's a study that was published in 1993 by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention called Reduced Recidivism and Increased Employment Opportunity Through Research-Based Reading Instruction. And one of the quotes in that article says, in order to remove the barriers to improved reading instruction so as to allow handicapped readers to become proficient readers in the shortest time possible, it will be necessary to provide reading teachers with the opportunity to acquire a knowledge of the alphabetic principles governing English spelling, as well as becoming confident in using instructional programs that incorporate intensive systematics phonics methods. For this to be accomplished, this in-service training most likely will have to come from private sector literacy providers because departments, schools, and colleges of education have a poor track record in providing this type of instruction. So all the way back 30 years ago, you know, this study really revealed that students were going to need a, a knowledge of the alphabetic principle and that the time provided by somebody who was knowledgeable. And unfortunately, at even then, it was identified that that probably wasn't going to be the case with schools because secondary teachers and schools of education really did not have that kind of knowledge and, and information. And then in 2003, a study was, that focused on the literacy development of juvenile offenders called A Project of Hope. Statistics showed that 85% of America's juvenile offenders have reading difficulties, 85%. And statistics show that approximately 40% of the juvenile offenders at a 10th grade level read below a fourth grade level. And between 30 and 50% of those students have learning disabilities. So 
really there's a direct connection between reading difficulties and dyslexia, reading disabilities, etc. And we know that these students obviously you know, it's connected to a lot of what the general and pediatric said about the emotional impacts. But then further on, a study called Kime Can Be Prevented If School Teach Juvenile Offenders to Read in the Children and Youth Services Review said the research shows that learning how to read is a major problem that juvenile offenders face when they attend school. This problem has the most significant effect on their overall academic success in school. For juvenile offenders, learning how to read is also critical to a successful transition from a detention center to a school setting. Schools cannot address the needs of youths involved in the juvenile justice system without considering their educational needs. Several studies have shown that crime and education are inextricably tied together and that factors like level of achievement in school, student grade retention, school attendance and graduation rights are related to criminal activity. When students fail to succeed in the school environment, they might choose to search for some other area in which to excel. Incarcerated youths who attend school typically experience chronic academic and behavioral difficulties, truancy, grade retention, and suspension. In addition, their formal ties to schooling are typically disrupted by their dropping out, being expelled, or effectively pushed out. So what that talks about in many cases is the school to prison pipeline, where students start to be, have behavioral problems, often in early grades because they're struggling with reading and all the shame around having difficulties. And then eventually what that leads to is, you know, detention, in-school suspensions, often expulsion and those kinds of things. So if we really want to make a change, one way to do that at every level and every grade is to identify students with behavioral difficulties and look at their reading scores. Ask teachers what happens in class when those students have to read. What are they doing? And taking a look at their written work. Do you see indicators of problems with spelling or comprehending information that was assigned to be read independently? And this is actually an even larger issue for society because as many as 70% of adult offenders are not proficient readers. In a study done in 2000, Moody et al. did a study in the, of the Texas prison system that evaluated adult inmates for dyslexia. And their research showed that while the percentage of dyslexia in the general population appears to be at about 20%, the adult offenders in the study showed characteristics of dyslexia at about double that percentage, which was 48%. So based on the research, we know there's a connection first between reading difficulties and behavior. We also know that the solution is identification and intervention with research-based reading instruction that is provided for enough time on a daily basis. And we know that if students don't get that, that often as we're looking at students who enter the system, either as juveniles or adults, that often their difficulties are related to their reading. There's a saying in education that when we know better, we do better. And I really hope that's the case with the information that was shared today. We've known for decades that when students struggle with reading in the early grades, that that often translates to students in the upper grades having difficulties with reading, and that there's a correlation between reading difficulty for older students and juvenile delinquency, and then on into adult 
corrections. So if we really look at how do we do better, one of the things is obviously to provide that time that's desperately needed for those older students in high schools and detention centers where they can get research-based intervention. Screening all juvenile offenders and adult offenders for dyslexia and making sure that intervention is provided in detention centers and prisons. It is really important that we address this because it doesn't affect just those individual students and their families, but also it's society as a whole. And one of the things that we can do to make a difference now is to begin looking at what we're doing in terms of this real need in the population of older students and adults. Thanks for joining us today. This episode concludes Season 5 of PodClast. We appreciate our listeners so much and hope that you'll join us for Season 6 in 2021. 